for advantage that we hold for our own ends to our own selfish purpose and advantage. By contrast, Jesus said no to his own advantage and yes to the good of others. As in the words of verse 7, he made himself nothing. Some translations put it, he emptied himself. Not of his divine nature, of course, because God cannot cease to be God, but of his divine privilege, we might say, as the maker of man became a man. And the ruler of the stars nursed at his mother's breast. And the bread of heaven knew what it was to be truly hungry. And the living water knew what it was to thirst. The one who is the truth knew what it was to be falsely accused. The one who is the life knew ultimately what it would be to die. As God, Jesus had enjoyed all of the honor and glory and power of eternity. But in taking the form of a servant, he veiled himself in the person, uh, the nature of one with no power, no rights, no honor, no glory, and only shame. He was born in order to die. You could picture him there in the manger, just a, a helpless baby gurgling and and crying like one we we heard at the back earlier this morning. So tiny, so vulnerable. The Christ was that fragile that first Christmas. But you look closely and even there, as he lies in the manger, you'll see the shadow of the cross falling across his face. The baby grew, became first a, a toddler, then a boy, A young man, he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. But never once did he take a wrong step. Never once did he say the wrong thing. Never once did he overreact to his parents' gracious instruction. Never once did he blow a fuse. But he was obedient to God in everything. He was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. He was tested in every way, just as we are yet he was without sin. In Gethsemane, he prayed, as he contemplated his own death, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. But you'll remember how he carried on. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And he remained obedient like that to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you'll know, many of you, that the great wonder of the Christian message is that Christ was willing to abase himself in that way for us, as well as for his Father's glory. Paul writes, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes, he was willing to become poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. And it is a wonderful thing to dwell on at this time of year, that Jesus was willing to lay aside so much divine privilege to be born in a manger for us, that he was willing to be written off and opposed as insane and satanic by the people around him, doubted even by his own family, for us to go hungry and thirsty for us, to be falsely accused, to be abandoned by his friends, to suffer, to bleed, ultimately to bear the cup, to drink the cup of the Father's wrath for us. 
because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you, if you want to trust in him, for many. Every single day, though, he had that choice. Will today be a day when I serve myself and my own interests? And every day he said no to himself and yes to us and our eternal advantage. It is hard to remember that and not to turn it to praise. We were right to sing, O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. But interestingly enough, the the chief implication of Christ's selfless humility here in Philippians lies in a different direction. And it's the, the squashing of human pride. If the first point is the humility of the Christ, the first major implication is the humility of the Christian. The uh, American theologian Jonathan Edwards described pride as being the, the worst viper in the human heart. He said it's the greatest disturber of the soul's peace. He said that it's the most difficult of all sins to root out because it is the very essence of sin. And we know that, that God hates pride. Uh, Proverbs says that everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Pride, not just the first of seven deadly sins, but the essence of it all. And yet in Philippi, there was just a danger beginning to emerge that pride might poison some of the relationships in the church and lead to real tension and division among them. The problem wasn't fully grown yet, but it was emerging. That's why up in verse 3, Paul has to say, if you glance there, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He has to say it because they were thinking of doing it. Literally, don't do anything out of empty glory. Instead, in humility, same word as that of Jesus, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you, he says, should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's trying to guard them against a a mind that's the exact opposite of what we've just seen about Jesus. He's urging them to imitate their Savior completely. Jesus humbled himself and ignored his own interests. Now they are to humble themselves and to look to the interests of others. And his goal is, is what we might call the effective unity of the congregation. Make my joy complete, he says in verse 2, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, being one in purpose. Um, I was pointed not so long ago to a a book with the rather sad title, Great Church Fights, which uh, chronicles the way that Christians have managed to treat one another over the centuries. It included an account of a little church in Wales that became divided during the search for a new pastor. It could easily happen in Scotland. Presbyterians are really good at this kind of thing. Yesterday, the account goes, the two opposition groups in the church both sent ministers to the pulpit. Uh, Both spoke simultaneously, each trying to shout above the other. Both called for hymns, and the congregation sang too, each trying to drown out the other. Then the groups began shouting at each other and Bibles were raised in anger. The Sunday morning service turned into a bedlam. 
Through it all, the two preachers continued to outshout each other as they preached their sermons. Sounds like a scene from a sketch show or Babylon Bee, if you're familiar with that. And you can smile at it. But if you've ever been caught up, as I was once, in a divided church, you'll know that it is no laughing matter at all. And there were just some alarm bells ringing in Philippi. I think these verses reveal a process by which that would have been happening. That first a church forgets Christ himself, his selfless humility, his self-forgetfulness, his willingness to suffer for the good of others. They forget all that they share in Christ, all that they've received from him. And then they start to think of themselves as their own interests as being more important than anyone else's. They start to dig their heels in and fight for their own corner and the way that they like things to be done. And they try to win others to their point of view. And very soon fault lines and factions emerge can happen in the greatest of churches. Philippi was in that category. Um, If you were to read through the letter, you'll see that at the start of it, in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, Paul was full of thanksgiving for every single one of them. Not just moderate thanksgiving for some of them, but full thanksgiving for all of them. They were a great church. But by chapter 4, he has to call out two of them by name. And urge them to agree with one another in the Lord. And here he's saying to the whole congregation, remember that you're citizens of heaven. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. As he puts it in verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. He's saying, remember all that you all already have in Christ. Objectively, remember the encouragement of the gospel. Remember the love that Christ has lavished on each one of you. Remember the spirit that he's poured into your hearts. And remember too subjectively what you've shared in together as God's people. The, the, the gospel encouragement that you've received from one another over the years. The way that Christ's love for you has been reflected in the way that you've loved one another the fellowship that you've enjoyed with each other in the Spirit and the God-given unity of the Spirit, the, the tenderness and compassion that's been evidenced among you. Remember all of that. Remember especially the humility of Christ and in humility love and serve each other. And God's message is exactly the same to us today. To the the very best of my knowledge, there are no um, factions and quarrels here in St. Peter's. If there there are, I haven't heard about them. I don't know of any individuals who need to be named from the front this morning and urged to agree with one another in the Lord. If that is right, then we should be profoundly grateful to God because the unity of God's people is a very precious thing and it can be lost so, so easily come from lots of different backgrounds, lots of different church backgrounds. If we experience unity in Christ, that is a wonderful blessing. Do you know all it would take would be for for one or two or three or four or five or six to begin to dig in heels about the type of songs we want to sing. That seems to be the, the, the vogue way to fall out with each other these days. 
or the um, expectations we place on one another, my needs, my interests, the way that I want things done, the way that I want to use my gifts and be involved, my views on who the new minister should be and how he should be found, quick as a flash, we could have people leaving in a huff and splitting the church. I want to encourage us then to come back to the cross and very consciously to allow it to humble us once again this morning and every morning. John Stott wrote, Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing. It is your curse I'm suffering. It is your debt I am paying. It is your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves until we visited a place called Calvary. It's there he finishes at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones making a similar point. There is only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust. And that is to look at the Son of God and especially to contemplate the cross. And that would be my experience too, as I'm sure it's yours. It's so easy to look at the world, to look at church, to look at church life through the lens of self. But that always leads to us being proud and self-absorbed. It is the cross that lifts us out of ourselves to focus on others and what will help them to grow in Christ. And the turning of a new year, the time of a vacancy, is just a wonderful time to allow ourselves to be humbled again like that, to set ourselves again on putting the interests of others first. We won't achieve that by beating ourselves up and putting ourselves down. That's not what I mean. But by looking, us, by looking to Christ and asking him to help us to build others up and to lift them up. That's our first, and I should say longer, point and implication this morning. The humility of Christ. In just our remaining moments, I want us to turn our minds, though, from Christmas Day, I realize we've slipped a good Friday, we're going to get all the way to Easter Sunday, in verses 9 to 11, the exaltation of Christ. Therefore, we read, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They're familiar words, and I take it they don't need much by way of explanation. There are lots of names that we give to people to show how important we think they are. We call them head teacher, first minister, CEO, chairperson, king, queen, president. There is no greater name than that of Lord. But that is the name that the Father has bestowed upon his Son, Jesus Christ. The Father loves the Son before all things. He delighted in his obedience unto death 
And so literally in verse 9, the word is he hyper-exalted him. Far above all other rulers and powers and authorities. And he did it with the explicit purpose that every knee in creation should bow before him. And every tongue confess that he's the sovereign, the ruler, the king of all people and everywhere and for all time. You can't miss the universality of that intention in verses 9 to 11, especially verse 10 there, can you? There's, um, I can't count quickly. There's what, maybe a couple of hundred here the, this morning. I'm told 150,000 live in Dundee, 5.5 million in Scotland, 66 million in the UK. You go around the world, there's 500 million people who identify as atheists, apparently. There's 1.8 billion Muslims. Every single one of their knees, as well as every single one of ours, will bow before Jesus. Every one of their tongues as well as every one of ours, will confess and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Not everyone will do it willingly, of course, gladly, but no one will be able to deny the reality of who he is. Um, so to, to illustrate this, think, think of what happened uh, on the morning after the general election. I realize this will be a, a happier illustration for some than for others, but just go with it for a second. You'll have seen, if you watched any of the coverage, a parade of people and party representatives coming before the media, and some were from winning parties, if I can call them that, whether that's down south or up here in Scotland, and they were exulting in their leader and praising his or her name. Others were from a losing party, and they were licking their wounds and promising to listen carefully to what the electorate said for the third time in five years or whatever it happens to be. But whichever side they were on, the one thing you'll have noticed that they all had to do was to acknowledge the result of the election. No one could deny what had happened. And that's a little picture, I think, of what it's going to be like on the last day. There will be two distinct groups of people. Can I call one the the rebels? those who have denied the, the lordship of Christ in this life and will go on denying him and defying him in the next. And they will know that Jesus is Lord and they will confess that truth through gritted teeth, but they won't delight in him for all they will know of him is his justice. The great day of his wrath will have come. And the rebels will not stand. The other group will be the saved. Um, All those who have repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because everyone, wonderfully, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And for any in this group, that's going to be a wonderful day. Think of the, the, the sin in your own heart that you hate. And it will be gone forever. Just the twinkling of an eye and you will sin no more. The suffering that spoils your life will be gone too. As the Lord Jesus himself wipes every tear from your eye. You'll see the Lord and be with him forevermore. Now we love him but we don't see him. We live by faith, not by sight. So we, we see but in a, in a mirror dimly. Then it will be face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known.
That day is coming when Christ will be acknowledged and honoured universally. All his claims will have been vindicated publicly and he will finally receive all of the glory and honour that he deserves. So the ark will be complete, that the one who started in glory but humbled himself to death will then be hyper-exalted to the glory of God the Father. It is an astonishing thought that the one who was once helpless at his mother's breast will on that day have billions bowing before him. That the one who wept and bled and died will be worshipped forevermore. It's astonishing, but that is the reality. And in Philippians, there are lots of implications of that reality. We're to define ourselves as citizens of heaven, not earth. We're to share in Christ's suffering now. We're to press on to the goal to which he's called us. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're to stand firm together to rejoice in the Lord. Lots of implications of this truth. But there is another implication, and with this we close. The Lordship of Jesus Christ also summons us to urgent, fearless gospel partnership. Urgent, fearless gospel partnership. Why don't you glance up to verse 27 of chapter 1 with me. It's really one of the key verses of the whole letter. That's why I'm just going to mention it. Whatever happens, says Paul, conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So we saw before that selfish pride can lead to broken relationships in the church. So too the the fear of opposition from outside the church can intimidate God's people to the point where we actually give up on the urgent and fearless proclamation of Christ. It is easy for a church to drift into defining itself and its mission in a very insular way, concentrating almost exclusively on the needs of those who already come to church. We must do that, but we must never forget that God has commissioned us to go and to make disciples of all nations. The word contend there in verse 27 is a very vigorous word, probably much more energetic than you want on the 29th of December. It's the word of of gladiators in the arena or of soldiers in the front line of battle, warriors standing side by side, a team laboring passionately for the same goal. And that is what the Lord Jesus calls us to in our church families. His universal lordship urges us on in this task, on into 2020. So we invite people to come to church with us. As we invest in the the lives of friends and family, members and neighbours and colleagues who are currently living as rebels of Christ, to labour together to make Christ known, as we prayed already, to the tens of thousands in this town who know nothing of his love. 
You know that moment in a wedding service where the, the minister joins the, the, hus- the hand of the new husband and wife together and says something like, those whom God has joined together, let not man put asunder or divide or, or something like that. I always find that to be a very profound moment. Here's a, a man and a, a woman who were two, but now they are one. They are united by God and commissioned by him to a new way of life. As I was reflecting, I think there's an analogy there for us as a, as a church. With the humility of Christ in his incarnation and the glory of Christ in his resurrection say to us, God has joined you together as partners in the gospel. Meaning that you've received its grace that you're heirs of all of its promises and that you're now co-workers together who labor and strive for the faith of the gospel. God has joined you together in that way. So let not the fear of man nor the pride of our hearts distract us, put us asunder or tear us away from that united labor to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Our great Father, we do want to praise you again for the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we pause to remember his humility. That moment by moment humility of a perfect life. Perfect in love for you. Perfect in love for neighbor. That he never wants sought to exalt himself or serve his own interests, but wanted only to please you and to do good to others. We praise you for him. We praise you for his death for us. And we praise you that he didn't stay dead. Praise you that he has been exalted and already has the name that's above every name. And we praise you that with absolute certainty we know that one day every knee will bow before him. And so we pray, our Father, for our own humbling that we might be united as a church family. And for our own confidence in him that we might strive together passionately to spur one another on towards love and good deeds and to make Christ known to this needy town. And we pray it in Jesus' name.